jumbles float onward anyway. The Autumn Defense started the new millennium off by reminding us of a rich and romantic era of rock and roll. Fronted by John Sturratt, a longtime member of Wilco, and joined by musical compatriot Pat Sansone, who has worked with Joseph Arthur, Swan Dive, and many more. Together they've created more than just music, they've created a sound all to themselves. Tuesday morning, sleeping in your clothes. Sharing roots in the southern rock scene of the late 1980s, they combined forces a decade later in New Orleans. The Autumn Defense has a sound which embraces and resists the mood of autumn. City bells are ringing In your mind they call you home The multi-instrumental duo has gathered inspiration from the sun-drenched west coast. Their melodies are reminiscent to the well-crafted sound found in the 1960s and the 1970s tradition. The Autumn Defense's first album, Green Hour, was released in 2000 on John Sturratt's own Broadmoor label. All these thoughts that fill my head begin to grow. Three years later, at a friend's Nashville studio, after two summers and another winter with numerous treks from Chicago and New York, their sophomore album, Circles, was released on the Arena Rock label. No one knows but you What your dark heart really longs for If I knew then I would see And this you won't believe their latest release, titled The Autumn Defense, is out and has an invigorating allure. It'll captivate a whole new audience. And now let's head to the Artist Interchange where we sit down for conversation and music with the Autumn Defense. Well, we're here at the Artist Interchange. My name is Andy Pulliam and I am here with Pat Sansone of the Autumn Defense and of Wilco. And Pat, uh, thanks for dropping by with us. It's a, it's a pleasure. You know, a lot of people might say, you know, coming from a band like Wilco, that the Autumn De Defense is a side project, but side project is almost a term that kind of minimizes what a, you know, a band is trying to do. So, how would you classify the music of the Autumn Defense? Uh, well, it's it's. I certainly don't think of of it as a as a side project. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's. John and I have been doing the Autumn Defense since really since 1999 is when we first got together and and uh, started writing together and singing together. At that time, I was involved in a lot of different projects. I, I it was long before I joined Wilco, and uh, I was doing a lot of studio musician work and, and writing my own music and, and occasionally touring with other people. So, uh, so the Autumn Defense was just kind of one more musical uh, endeavor to to be involved in, uh, and 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 certainly certainly uh, 
has con continued to be like a, you know a, a, an important part of my musical uh, musical life. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I understand why it's why it's perceived as a side project because you know because you know John and I being in Wilco, Wilco has such a big profile, understandably. So it's understandable why it's thought of that way, but but it doesn't feel that way to to us. Just reading over a, a lot of the material on you guys, the comparisons are made with the California-style folk rock, bir the birds, bread, mm -hmm. the Beach Boys. And now, um, did you consciously draw upon those influences, or were these more after-the-fact sort of things that other people came up with? Well, I mean, we love that music. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no denying it. That's For John and I, That's that's that was a big part of our initial connection when we first started hanging out and, and started uh, just strumming guitars and making music. We were listening and connecting over a lot of that stuff, kind of finding that we had really similar tastes and, and, and a lot of the same records, and a lot of those records were some of the stuff that you just mentioned. So, mm -hmm. um, so that, was a, that was a big part of us even, even starting to make music together. We didn't necessarily consciously say, "Let's make a record that sounds, you know, let, let's let's form a band that sounds like this." Um, but I think that I think that a big reason that that happened, and a, a big reason that we get those comparisons, is because the music that we make is sort of based around our voices and our harmonies, um, and the, the the kinds of voices that we have, and the way it sounds when we sing together. That's really that was the starting point of the band. Uh, and 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 the arrangements and the production uh, were sort of dictated by th by that central thing, which is the same for these other bands, like the ones that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like the Birds and and the Beach Boys and all that California stuff, Crosby, Stills and Nash. All that stuff was sort of based around the sound of those guys singing together. So I think that that's a big part of the connection, a big part of why why we have uh, a connection to that sound. It's Do you find it a challenge to take the sound of the record, which is obviously, you know, a lot of complex arrangements mm -hmm. and just a lot of sound mm -hmm. going on? Is it a challenge to take that sound and translate it to, uh, you know, the live setting? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a challenge, and uh, but we've got we've got a good band out with us, you know, so we've been able to, if not completely recreate the, the, the sound, the, the exact arrangements on the records. It's, with our band, we've been able to, you know, make a big sound, I think, and make it, make it musically deep and, and uh, you know, um, 
so yeah, and we you know we knew we weren't going to be able to take harpsichords and mm -hmm. and string sections out on the road, but but uh, you know, and, and our our keyboard player is, is is really good too, and he's been able to jump around and sort of sort of create some of that stuff on stage. So okay, so you you um, had a string quartet. I noticed that mm -hmm. the. Uh, at the Park West show on Saturday night, um, so they're not a regular touring no. thing with you. No, we we had a we hired a different quartet when we played in L.A. and uh, we're also going to hire a quartet for our Meridian Mississippi show, mm. which is my hometown. Okay, and we're playing in a really beautiful old opera house there, and uh, thought that it would be really appropriate to to have strings there as well but that was just a kind of a just a sort of a special thing that we decided to do for a few shows mm. john knows uh had worked with this quartet in la called the section quartet and they were amazing they just showed up and nailed everything perfectly and that was the first time we'd ever performed with live strings and it was a real thrill to do it and we wanted to do it for our hometown chicago show because um, the park, you know, because the Park West is such a nice venue, and we thought the strings mm -hmm. would sound really great in there, and uh, so yeah, that I mean, we, we would be wonderful to do that for every show. But a lot of the stages that we've been playing on on this tour, we, we can barely fit on the stage. Mm. <laughs> There'd be no way to couldn't even fit a violin bow on the stage. <laughs> you know, I really enjoy the fact that listening to the to the the new disc, um, you you got the bossa nova in the middle of the album there, and. Uh, somehow, though, it seems to work really nicely, and I'm wondering if there are certain common threads that you feel run through all the songs, even though a lot of the songs are vastly different. Some have more of a, you know, a soulful feel, and some mm -hmm. are more, you know, lighter and melodic. Is there a common thread that you feel that runs through all the songs? I hope so. I mean, it, it's not, you know, it, it's not a, it's not a concept album. You know, mm -hmm. there wasn't, there wasn't. Uh, a planned uh, theme or anything, but mm -hmm. I mean, I think there has to be, yeah. you know, or or hopefully there is one in in a uh, in something like in, in something like this. So I'm sure I'm I'd be curious, you know, it's interesting to me to hear people's interpretations of what that is, you know. Um, but I think there's I think if anything there's there is an there is a common emotional thread that that runs through it you know there's mm -hmm. there seems to be a certain uh feeling you know there's, certainly there's a there's a melancholy nature mm -hmm. to it and a certain feeling of longing i guess you know in there but uh but to be honest i haven't really spent a lot of time just analyzing that oh, part sure. of it I, I'm, i've, I've kind of left that up to the listeners mm -hmm. when you talk about the the different songs and the it does sort of every song does have kind of a, its own feel as well as maybe a common thread. Um, what sort of methods do you employ in in your songwriting to to come up with such a diverse array of uh, of music? Well, I think a lot of it just comes from being fans of a lot of different kinds of music, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and uh, yeah, you mentioned the bossa the bossa thing. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Brazilian music mm. and. and and John is a fan as well. And, you know, we had a bossa. We had a bossa on our first album, on um, the Green Hour. There's a song that John uh, wrote using uh, some uh, pieces of the Woody Guthrie lyrics that he had encountered, like when working on the Mermaid Avenue right. 
project. So he took some of those lyrics and wrote wrote a bossa around it. So so this isn't the first time we've dabbled in, in bossa. And, yeah. And a lot of in our, in our live shows we were doing um, a couple of tunes. We were doing Everybody's Been Burned, which is a, a great David Crosby mm -hmm. birds track yeah. that has yeah. kind of a bossa feel and and. Uh, so there's kind of a connection. I think you know, and there's a great Tim Harden song called "Misty Roses" that we were doing that also has kind of a bossa feel. I think there's a you know, bossa nova was sort of the, sort of the, popular folk music of of Brazil mm -hmm. in the in the in the 60s. You know, it became more it became famous worldwide, of course, but it started off as kind of a grassrootsy sort of thing. So I guess there's a connection between Brazil's folk pop and you know and and the american folk pop of the of the 60s you know and there was a lot of cross pollination between those styles right. sure so it doesn't see you know i think there is a there is a wide in in some ways you can say there is a, a really wide array of feels and sounds on the record but it's, you know but if you step back and look at it from like a, a broader perspective it's probably not as diverse as it is when you're like actually in the record you know a mm -hmm. lot of those sure. i think a lot of those a lot of those um, different styles have probably more in common than, than they do you know differences now your time is the wrong time to think of you because that's when my mind falls back to love Wilco, they it seems to work as a band because there always seems to be the certain unexpected elements that when you're listening to it and uh, really draw the listener in and I, I get that same sense with you guys too like different you know you don't necessarily expect to hear a harpsichord in a mm -hmm. in a pop album but uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to hear um, do you think that some of Autumn Defense's sound finds its way into Wilco or vice versa when you well, I will say there is a touch of harpsichord on the new Wilco records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I guess it has. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it has to just because of you know, I mean, again, the the sound of John and I singing together is uh, is you know, this is the first Wilco record that features that. Mm -hmm. So uh, so sure, I mean, I think you know, I mean, I, there's there's a musical there's a musical connection that John and I have there's there's something that we create together when we're singing together that's that's beyond you know what both of us would do otherwise so and and that's part of the will of Wilco now and and uh yeah I think you know that's one of the coolest things about Wilco is that everybody everybody in the band uh has other avenues of expression and other avenues of of you know creating which I think is part of what is making Wilco uh, deeper and, and richer, is that when we do come together, we are um, 
you know, because we have these other avenues of expression, when we come to Wilco, it, it's its own thing. It's not as though, it's not as though um, we have to do everything that we can do in Wilco. It's more about kind of coming together on its own terms. Now, in terms of the latest Autumn Defense release, I get the sense that, that these are very carefully crafted compositions. Now, um, how do the arrangements come about for you guys? Um, well, the songs come, f def you know, come first. Basically, the way we write songs is is one of us will have, generally, one of us will have an idea, uh, kind of a, a basic idea, some chords, and we'll sit around together with acoustic guitars and and just kind of strum and 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 work it out, you know, on a, on acoustics or acoustic and piano. Um, and and. And as that process goes, you know, ideas come like, oh, this section would be, wouldn't it be great to hear some strings here, or oh, you know, an oboe would sound really nice here. That stuff just kind of, kind of comes about after we've, after we've, actually written the songs and worked them out. Um, and then you know, sometimes you try things and they don't work, and then mm -hmm. sometimes an accident will happen, and and you know, um, or some, sometimes things are spontaneous. Like on the the opening song, Canyon Arrow. Um, we had hired a flute player, uh, this amazing flute player, Jim Hoke, to play flute on some of the other songs. And we did this in Nashville, which is where we recorded the strings, too. And we had like, a f we had like five hours set aside for flute, or four hours even, not even that, that long. And I had a parts written for a few other songs. He came in, and he's a genius, and he's a pro, and he just nailed everything you know, really fast. So then we had some extra time. I think he did everything in an hour or something. Mm. And as he was packing up his flute, I just sort of thought, uh, wow, you know, flute would sound really good on Canyon Arrow, too. But should I ask him? Because I only asked him to work on these songs, and I hate to throw something at him last minute. But I just decided to do it. I said, hey, man, you know, we've got this one other song. I think flute would sound really good if you wouldn't mind, you know, just taking a crack at it. And he said, sure. And we didn't even play it for him. He didn't even listen mm -hmm. to it. I just kind of described to him what the vibe was, you know. And he went into the studio, and we rolled tape. And what you hear on the record is exactly what he played as mm. he was as he was jamming with it for the first time. And I'm so glad that I asked him because it's one of the, you know it's one of my favorite things on the record. Yeah, well, that, that must really put your you know mind at ease when somebody can come in and just nail it and say oh, yeah. you know that's. That's great. Oh, and it was, it was, it was, and it was nice to have. It was nice to have a little, you know, an, an element of spontaneity, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a in a record that does have a lot of, you know, like, like you say, carefully. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a lot of carefully planned, uh, carefully crafted arrangements and stuff. Mm -hmm. But there are some moments of spontaneity yeah. in there too. Yeah. So it's nice. It was, and it's nice, I think, to open the record with something that has that feeling every day every day I'm thinking of you show me the way the way to what is high above you and we'll fly Along with the canyon arrow, guided by the 
song of the silent sparrow They'll take us all around this town and back again Every night, every night I'm having the same dream Ooh. Is it right that I'm always dreaming the same dream Ooh. That we fly along with the canyon arrow guided by the song of the silent sparrow that takes us all around the moon and back again We'll be right back with part two of our conversation with the Autumn Defense.
Welcome back to the Artists Interchange. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. Some experts say the music you grow up to love is either due in part to your parents or more as a rebellious statement towards them. How applicable is that, you know, for you? Uh, well, it's a little tough because both of my parents were big music fans. And uh, uh, I think it was more of, I think of probably it was more about rebelling against just where I grew up than rebelling against them so much because they were kind of, they were sort of different than the rest of the town themselves. So but it was more about, I grew up in a small town, Mississippi, and but I was mostly, when I was a teenager, mostly listening to the Beatles and the Kinks and, you know, in my head, in my head I was living in London in 1967, so I think it was more about rebelling against my town than against them. Has to start somewhere, and why yeah. not a small town in Mississippi? Now, since you're a very busy man, world traveler, mm -hmm. you know, multi-instrumental guy, what does Pat Sansone do to relax? What, what's a day off? What do you do to kick back? Uh, there's a lot of, uh, really, a lot of doing a whole lot of nothing, really. Like, I kind of had one of those days yesterday where I just, like, was on the couch and watching some videos and ordering in some food and taking a walk around the neighborhood that's that's pretty much that's pretty much it man you make me wish i had a day off yeah that's that's i was i was in heaven actually yesterday <laughs> <laughs> well then enjoy your short break on the tour well, thanks yeah. looks like you got back to chicago for a brief warm spell too yeah this is today and yesterday not too bad it's in honor of the autumn defense thank you thank you weather yeah on on your uh, website bio, you know, mm -hmm. there's a quote from uh, John. It mentions Mr. Show. Are are you a big Bob and David fan? Yeah, well, that bio is kind of is a little old. We, uh, but Mr. Show was a big part of our last the last tour that we did like three years ago. The, the having we, I think we had the whole, the whole, uh, video. We had the whole DVD set out with us. So it kind of kept us sane on 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 a lot of those dry, long drives. So yeah, but you know, as, as is the case with a lot of that stuff, you know, you we probably watched those episodes like over and over and over. <laughs> and by the end of the tour, we're just kind of speaking to each other and and Mr. Show quotes and had to walk away from it because it was getting a little scary. <laughs> All righty. Well, since you brought up you know watching movies on the road, I've seen many you know. Rock stars mention this, but has the Autumn Defense had a Spinal Tap moment yet? Oh, I'm sure we have. I mean, every, you know, you can't be a you can't be a rock band without having probably like one one per day. Yeah, I mean, we definitely you know we 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 had a pretty funny uh, we had a pretty funny time getting to this show in in Provo, Utah, on this last leg where we were got caught in the snow. We were stuck in the snow for like eight hours and. Thought we were going to have to cancel the show. Decided to try to make it because the promoter didn't want us to to bail on the show. But we were just going to have to basically get out of the you know like we probably wouldn't even get to the club till 10:30 p.m. Just jump out of the van, run on stage, use the opening band's equipment, and and play. And we uh, 
so we decided, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make it. And we, we were making good time. We, we, we got off the interstate, made the exit into Provo, Utah, which is right by uh, Salt Lake City. And right after getting off the exit, on our way to the club, maybe half a mile for the, from the club, we had a flat tire. <laughs> so we were almost there, you know, so close, flat tire, and then, then the jack that we had wasn't quite the right size. We couldn't get the tire off. It was it was pretty heartbreaking, but pretty hilarious at yeah. the same time watching us have to deal with this. But we actually made it to the show and ended up being one of the best shows in the tours. Well, after that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which wouldn't have happened to Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap would have shown up and and uh, they wouldn't have even been listed on the bill. They would have walked onto a puppet show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I was young, I felt the way to love was through. Keeping yourself above the fray, and that was you, and now I feel. I was only holding my breath. Spinning faster than the years have shown me through. Have you ever thought about like throwing your hat into the political rock arena of like, you know, sort of politically charged songs? Uh, not really. I mean, it's it not that we're not that we're opposed to it or not that we're not politically minded, but uh it's just not something that nat has naturally occurred with with the with the autumn defense, you know. It's it's I guess the autumn defense music has generally been more about sort of an inner you know, sort of a per the personal politic, you know, if you will. Yeah. But um, I, I did sort of notice, at least with this last album, a sort of existential vibe mm. going on. It could just be me. Maybe that could be. No, I think it's. I think that's. I think that's in there for sure. Yeah. Mm. A lot of artists nowadays they're releasing uh, their B sides. You know, on the websites. Is that something you would do? Just release, you know, B sides through the website easy downloads or you sort of saving them up for like an album to be released well to be honest we don't really have a lot of b-sides we you know we haven't um just because of our schedules and the the sort of our methods we don't have a we don't have a big stockpile of unreleased stuff uh we just we just don't we've never really had the luxury of being able to you know to uh to re record a great volume of stuff I mean, there are a few things, but but we're not one of those bands that just you know is able is you know is able to is able to create a lot of stuff and then sift through it and then decide what they're going to put on a record. We basically kind of do sort of sift through the material before we start recording, and then and then and then we know you know we decide okay these these are the songs that are going to be on the on the album. So unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of like deep deep cuts <laughs> that we can put out there, but. Maybe that'll change with this next with this next project. We kind of hope to kind of hope to start working sooner, um, um, so that's not another three years before we put out a record. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. So yeah, well, it comes off very great and organic. So it's a great method. So, and uh, this is going to possibly be the toughest one. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm just giving you a little heads right. up. How does an international act like the Autumn Defense <laughs> choose... Yeah, you're too kind. But ah. <laughs> See, I just have foresight. That's right, all. Right. I, know. I, I know it's going to happen. But 
How do you guys choose your MySpace top friends? Our top friends? Well, it's mostly people that we know. It's mostly people that we've, you know, like I'm trying to think who's who who's in our top friends. Do you can you oh, have you, there was, have you checked I, it out? I've I, I checked it out. I'm blanking on her name, but I want to say she was. Uh, I remember the song being in Spanish. She was like a musical artist. Uh, oh, Juana Molina. Yes. Oh, well, she's amazing. Have you heard her music? When I went to her page, I just started playing. I yeah. slapped what my girlfriend was doing out <laughs> of her hand. I said, check this out. Oh, she's incredible. I'm just a big fan. We Actually, John and I heard her music. We were over at our web webmaster's place while he was helping us set up set up some, some web stuff a while back. And it just came up on his iTunes mix, and I was just blown away. And I immediately went out and got the record. and just been a big fan ever since and she's made a couple of records I've seen her perform a couple of times in Chicago she's from Argentina and she she was a big TV star in Argentina she was on like a like the the big the biggest sitcom in Argentina kind of like the Argentina's friends or something you know when she was younger and so she's known as a TV comedy star down there but she around the world she's more known as as this you know this songwriter and she makes these beautiful sort of folk they're sort of like folky electronic she does everything herself she performs completely by herself and makes loops live on stage and oh wow it's pretty magical so yeah, yeah she's 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 just someone that i really i'm just a huge fan of oh yeah well uh, she does deserve the top 10 space yeah so. she's and it's been cool to see her you know she's she's definitely developed uh, developed a an, her audience seems to be growing and growing which you know I'd like to take some credit for for putting her in my top top friends it is why <laughs> you know I would not have stumbled on that and I'm a man who doesn't stumble even while walking See, that's the that's the magic of MySpace, man it is it's that well thank you so much mr. Uh, Sansone thank you and I appreciate it pleasure meeting and talking Great to with be you here On the next Fundamental Tracks, we meet with Ken Will Morton at the Artist Interchange. And now let's find out what's new this month as Alex and Sierra tells us what's on tap. Hey everybody, this is Alex with your new releases for March, and this is What's on Tap. New Metal Pioneers, Korn released an album based on their unplugged sessions they recorded for MTV. Korn plays hits from their past four albums and also include covers by The Cure and Radiohead with special guest Amy Lee of Evanescence. Following up on their successful debut album Funeral, Montreal's Arcade Fire released Neon Bible, an 11-track album with orchestral and string arrangements and songs with titles like Black Mirror, Intervention, and My Body is a Cage. I can feel the pretension coming in the air tonight. Oh Lord. Oh Lord. Dust off your Doc Martens and leather jackets, Chicago industrial icons KMFDM are having two of their albums re-released on their Metropolis label. 
Nihil and Extort, both released in 1995 and 96 respectively, are digitally remastered and include booklets featuring original album art, extensive liner notes, lyrics, and never-before-seen photos of the band. That double vision is still getting the best of you, huh? Arena Rockers Foreigner re-release all their pre-1990 albums. Agent Provocateur, Double Vision, Foreigner, Head Games, Inside Information, and Four will all include bonus tracks from live concerts. Following up on the 2006 box set Perception, The Doors have all their albums remastered and stocked with bonus tracks and DVDs of their live performances. The DVDs include video footage and a 5.1 surround mix. Doors fans will also enjoy various outtakes and alternate takes of Roadhouse Blues, The Changeling, and Love Me Two Times. Isn't that well dry already? Perhaps not. P. Diddy's Bad Boy Records will release a notorious B.I.G. Greatest Hits album. While most of Biggie's hits can be found on his pivotal albums Ready to Die and Life After Death, that certainly doesn't stop Diddy from profiting off his deceased friend and meal ticket for the purpose of, I don't know, buying a fleet of Learjets maybe? Lock up your mothers and clean up the broken glass. Punk icons The Stooges launched their first tour in over two decades starting on March 8th in support of their first album in 30 years with The Weirdness. The Stooges also re-released their iconic album Funhouse in a deluxe edition that includes an 11-minute version of the song Funhouse and multiple takes of Loose and Down on the Street. Metalhead 7 Dust's first album since 2005's next will be Alpha. The band will release the album through their own label and are currently on a 57-date tour that ends April 28th. Depeche Mode, who have seen a resurgence in their career with 2005's Playing the Angel, re-released their albums Ultra, Construction Time Again, Black Celebration, and Exciter. The mode includes bonus tracks and bonus DVDs on each album, and if you're wondering about the remastered Violator album, so am I. The Demons in Hell may want to grab a parka and some hot chocolate as a hip-hop tribute to Pink Floyd will be released this March. The album art mirrors that of the classic Dark Side of the Moon with a bling-encrusted dollar sign in the middle. Originality? Integrity? Oh, how I wish you were here. And that was the new releases for March. I'm Alex, and stay tuned next time for another round of What's on Tap. Stick around for more of Fundamental Tracks. Finally, we close this episode of Fundamental Tracks with Andy Pulliam's take on the music industry, The Resonating Chord. When did radio stop being relevant? Ask your average music fan these days what their favorite radio station is, and you'll probably get the confused response. Radio? Like you just asked them about the latest in 8-track player technology. Could we be experiencing the last days of radio? I turned up the radio. I can't hear it. I don't want it to be true, believe me. Growing up, radio meant something. You turn your dial with the precision of a surgeon until the crackling static was overtaken by the vibrant sounds of bigger-than-life personalities playing music that felt life-affirming, meaningful. There goes the last DJ Who plays what he wants to play And says what he wants to say Hey, hey, hey For me, it was personal, too. My dad was a DJ on a small market AM oldie station. The station didn't have a breadth of listeners. I would power down at night to the point where you'd probably have to be standing next to the transmitter with a high-powered antenna to get its signal. But that didn't matter.
My dad felt passionate about the music and his job as the vessel by which music was presented. He would do daily mini-concerts, complete with audience noise for different artists. He once spent a Thanksgiving day playing nothing but the Beatles. In short, he made it interesting, fun, worth listening to. And that's why people clung to radio. Not only would they be the trendsetters for new music, but they'd give you the packaging as well. In the early days of radio, it was as much or more about the Alan Freeds or the Dick Biondis than the music itself. But what happened? One could say that it's all cyclical and radio just hasn't made the appropriate changes. Things grow stale after a while, and the formula has to be revised. Such has been the story of radio over the years. But maybe it's not just the natural ebb and flow of things this time. Maybe radio has become so commercial, so corporate, so packaged, that it has no more flexibility, no more ability to change. Commercial radio is predictable, bland, out of touch. It's that same, same song. People want variety, interesting programming, interesting personalities, cutting-edge music, and lots of it. So where do they go? They go to the internet. People fill up their iPods with music from various sources on the web. They go to MySpace. They follow a friend's recommendation. They go everywhere but the radio. In fact, radio stations seem to be the last to know about the Lily Allens and the OK Goes of the world who found initial stardom via the internet. They go to satellite radio, which plays a diversity of music unheard of in commercial radio, with the added benefit of being commercial-free, at least for the time being. And satellite radio is where you go to find the personalities worth listening to. It's where you can find the king of all media, Howard Stern, and the queen of seemingly everything in the universe, Oprah Winfrey. And where else can you find the ultra-cool, gravelly voice of Bob Dylan opening up his music collection for all the world to hear? Yes, more than any time in its relatively short existence, commercial radio has something to be seriously concerned about. Is it too late for them? I don't think so, but it has to do something to become relevant again. First of all, drop the stubbornness that is killing the major record labels. They watch CD sales drop, but still stick to their tired old methods. Radio 2 seems to be mired in this thought. 2. Radio has to bring a more interesting local perspective. Take Chicago, for instance, who has one of the most interesting and vibrant local music scenes, extending across several genres, yet little to no airplay for these acts to be showcased. The bottom line is that people are looking elsewhere for what terrestrial radio used to give them, and will continue to do so until radio finds a way to be relevant again. I imagine commercial radio will always exist in some way. It remains to be seen just what that way will be. Let that resonate with you for a while. For Fundamental Tracks, I'm Andy Pulliam. This is Rock and Roll Radio. Stay tuned for more rock and roll. Reeling with the news that I heard 
your hand Thinking I was someone Listening to Fundamental Tracks, a production of Fundamental Records. Visit them online at fundamentalrecords.com. Senior producer for Fundamental Tracks is Tim White, national producer Andy Pulliam, writers Joe Nichols, Alex and Sierra, and Andy Pulliam. I'm Ingrid Lasowskis. Fundamental Tracks is produced and recorded from the studios of the Illinois Center for Broadcasting, where broadcasting careers begin. Log on to beonair.com for more information. Tune in next time for more of the best of music outside the mainstream.